This is Will Ford from Football 365, and you're listening to At the Bridge Pod, a Chelsea FC podcast. What's up, everyone? You're listening to At The Bridge Pod, a Chelsea FC podcast, your number one source for all things Chelsea. On this week's episode, we are bringing back our cult hero segment by talking about one of our greatest number nines, the Dutch forward himself, Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank, as well as looking back over the previous week's games. Now, here are your hosts all the way from the UK, Mikey Berth and Chris. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of At The Bridge Pod. I am your host, Mikey, and I'm joined today by my co-hosts, Berth and Chris. How are we doing today, lads? Yeah, I'm really good, thank you. It's been a pretty good week for me, to be fair. I'm not that tired this week, which is good for me. Um, But yeah, I'm not too bad. How are you, Chris? I'm the opposite this week. I've been working loads this week, so I'm I'm quite tired. So we've switched switched roles. We've switched wings, some might say. I'm, li- I'm liking the reference there. I'm liking that reference. Mm-hmm. I- I'm not tired. I did a leg day. I did a leg day the other day, so still still painful. But you know, get that, that those onset doms as they call them. But yeah, now, now you may have noticed already, listeners. We have made a few additions to the uh, the podcast. First of all, I've gone out and purchased a fancy new microphone, so uh, we did have a laugh setting this up. Um, yeah, it was probably not going to go back to Amazon, as uh, Chris said, <laughs> thankfully. Uh, a few teething issues, but we got there. But yeah, so it should be much more improved now. And um, from next week's episode, from this week's episode, sorry, going forward, you may also know by now if you follow us on social media, which, let's be honest, you should be by now. So much fantastic content on there, I promise. Uh, you'll know we are going to start adding match day commentary to liven up the episode, so you kind of get a feel for what the game was about. So hopefully you like that addition. So with that, we're going to head into the newsroom and see what the latest goings on are at Stamford Bridge. Before we go check out the games in review, you will all know about Petrček. He's been added to our 25-man squad for the Premier League. Uh, how do you think Kepa and Cavalero, who is actually eight months older than Czech, will be uh, feeling right now? I mean, I, th- I think Kepa is the one that will probably take the most offence from it. Um, I think Caballero will see it for how it is. I think Caballero is quite a good professional, but I feel that Kepa will feel that like it's a bit of a kick in the teeth, to be honest. I mean... As a Chelsea fan, as a big Chelsea fan growing up, seeing Petrček <laughs> being named in the squad was quite shocking, but at the same time was quite nostalgic and quite quite a solid, put it that way. But yeah, I don't think Kepa will react too well to it, to be honest. No, I, I think Kepa must have accepted by now, though, that his Chelsea career is over. I mean, yeah, will almost certainly leave in January. So I think that's probably why Czech's been added to the squad. I think for Kepa to leave in January and then we won't have to bring in a replacement because Caballero will just move up to number two and then checks there in that in case of emergency. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it just, I thought it was a bit of a typo at first, but apparently not. It's crazy really, but it is what it is. It, he's, it's apparently due to COVID reasons. Obviously if one goalkeeper gets taken down, you know, we, we could be very, because they're in their own apparent bubble. So Caballero, Kepa, and Mendy are all training together. So if obviously if one gets sick, potentially is more than one or two, you know, you could be then down to one goalkeeper on your match day squad, which isn't good, is it? You know, we need we need goalkeepers, but it's mad to think that Czech could actually mm. play. Unlikely feel, he plays. I do feel though that, that 
sort of COVID, fair enough, they've got their own bubble and that. I do feel it's still a bit of a, a smoke screen for something else. I think Lampard just doesn't trust Kepa anymore. And I think yeah. it's a way of sort of them basically saying, Kepa, your career's over at Chelsea. We're going to say it's COVID to the media, but you're on your way out and we're going to keep checking as our third choice keeper. Yeah, it That's how it you, seems yeah. anyway. Yeah, for sure. Right, with that out of the way, we are going to be heading straight to the game reviews and we'll try to keep them as brief as possible. But first up, it's time to look back at our league game against Southampton. Ryan Bertrand with the free kick for Southampton. It's come out to Theo Walcott. Oh, yeah! it's in! It's 3-3! Southampton straight back again. Later. So it ended 3-3, another game where I hold the result to the coach than the players, in my opinion. I mean, it's kind of annoying how Lampard's sort of picking... He's picking on players after each game for errors when I feel that the inquiry should really be looking towards him and the coaching staff because it was another defensive disaster class. I mean, what did you feel about the game, lads? I feel... And I've noticed this for a long time now under Lampard, and I think we've mentioned it briefly. I think our two holding midfielders pressed too high up the pitch. And I said last week that... Well, I said on the group chat, sorry, that feels like teams get past our press way too easily. And I feel Kante and Jorginho just are pressed far too high. And once you beat that press, you're in on the defence. And then it just seems as if we're far too open. I mean, of course, there is that sort of individual mistake that keeps happening every single game with the with Kepper incident. But I do feel we're far too open in midfield. And you can look at Lampard and you say... You know, it's naive from him for one of the midfielders to press high at the pitch. By the way, sorry for hearing a bang in, in the background. Fireworks are going off in my house at the moment. Thought you were losing, um, temp- thought you were losing your temper then. No, yeah, pyro's <laughs> going off outside my house at the moment. It's all kicking off. But yeah, I think our, our midfield's way too easily beat. And I think we're far too open. I think Lampard has to take some responsibility for that. And we are too naive in the press game, I think, anyway. Yeah, we spoke about the, the, the press. And I think what the problem is, is that I agree, I think you look at our midfielders and they're pressing high up the pitch, but our front three actually aren't pressing anymore. When we lose the mm. ball, our wingers actually drop off, but our midfielders go and press. There's no there's no department working together. There's, you know, if we're going to play a press, you have to get the whole team up the pitch and suffocate the space. You can't you can't press in, in sort of departments and as individuals because teams will play around that and then that does put us in trouble. I think yeah. the defensive mistake issue is people are just making poor decisions. I mean, Kurt, the, the Kurt Zuma mistake, he should just clear that out for a throw-in. He should never be trying to pass a bouncing ball back to his goalkeeper anyway with the striker closing mm. down. If he just puts it out for a throw-in and we defend the throw-in, it's, it's fine. Kai Havertz obviously made a mistake for the, you know, the first goal in the first half, although Christensen and, and Zuma didn't cover themselves in glory on that either. Um, I just think I don't think I don't think the tactics was right, and I, what's what's concerning me at the minute is we don't seem to be changing tactics in games when things aren't going well. I mean, Lampard himself after the game said that we didn't cope when Southampton started to put us under pressure and and play a press, and he would have liked to have seen us go and play longer. But but he's the manager, so he should be making the team play long. It, yeah. it, he, almost, he almost put all the blame on the players for not adapting. But he's on the sideline in an empty stadium. He's quite, it's quite easy for him to be telling his fullbacks to hit channels. 
Yeah, I mean, the entire issue, it starts after we concede the first goal. And, you know, I feel that at half-time, Frank should be telling the players to continue what we were doing. You know, it, it was a bit bizarre stating that he wanted them to, like, hoof the ball up as if we expected pressing from Southampton, which they they did that in the first half. But it's not as though we have, like, a Drogba or a Costa to target long balls and hold up play. Um, Werner, he's, a, he's, a, he's that sensational forward. He, he, we know his goal scoring, he's prolific, he's in, incredible. But the ball, he's not a hold-up striker. And there's no point in playing Werner in that, that role if we're going to hoof the ball. You might as well play Giroud. Um, looking at, you know, unlike other Chelsea coaches, Lampard took over a team that was playing well from the back. You know, we, we were. I mean, Conte and Sarri had kind of set up circuits you could say to progress the ball from goalkeeper to midfield beyond and you know you think all Lampard had to do was keep the good things then simplify it you know and it's our ball progression from deep is one of the worst among top teams you know and it kind of feels that there's no plan on attack and defense you know when we were pressure when we're pressurized the defenders midfielders almost panic now you could say this was Kepa related you know, and we've done sort of clumsy things. We bring up Zuma, he's been clumsy. Christensen against Liverpool and Kepper rushed out. But Southampton's second goal, it's a comedy of errors. It's hilarious. You know, Kepper's poor, but don't let that cloud the comedy. You know, what happens in front of him with Zuma, it's just, oh, really? You know, Kepper and the defence almost enhance each other's insecurities. And I feel that that's error and error. Um, what else is there to say about that game? You know, you said about Kai. Kai and Werner were quite good. Mm. I mean, I say quite good. Our, our attackers were sensational. You know, Werner was world class. His, his goals were, oh, oh, they were lovely. You know, and Havertz, Cho, Ziyech, Mount Pulisic, they're all pretty capable in the game. Yet, you then ask, does the system and the structure we're looking at and the coaching optimise their talents for goals and assists? I'm not sure at this moment. Well, what do you feel there? I think, I mean, Werner for me was, was the best player on the pitch. I thought he was magnificent on Saturday. His two goals, especially his first one, was just incredible. He really showed sort of what he can do. Um, I think, I think you've got to give our forwards a bit of time to adapt. Werner and Havertz, especially, and Ziyech as well. They're not used to Premier League. They're still getting used to how everyone plays. I think it will take a bit of time to adapt to Lampard's system and the English game. We, we Got to remember, we only bought them in the summer. So, it, so they're still getting used to the, the game and our style of play. Um, I think as time goes on, we'll only get better. Um, against Sevilla, we were poor going forward, I must admit that. But against Southampton, I thought we were very good. I think Lampard likes to play with a lot of freedom with our forwards. And Southampton did show that. And I think going forward, we will get better. Yeah. yeah. I'm... I just want to pick up on what you said about moving the ball from defence through to midfield and then through to attack. And right. It's not going to be, it's not probably not going to be a popular opinion again, but I do think, Ooh. don't see what Angolo Kante offers this team at the minute. Oh, he's been poor. I watched him on Saturday and he doesn't break up the play anymore. The The Southampton first goal, if you actually pause it at the moment that the player's about to put it through to Danny Ings, if Angolo Kante slides, he cuts the pass out, but he just mm. jogs over to him and then stands still. But most of our attacks at the moment break down when N'Golo Kante gets on the ball. If a, mid, if a defender gives it to him in midfield, he gives it away. And if we get him involved in the final third, he gives it away. So at the minute, he's not breaking up attacks and he keeps giving the ball away. I just if, don't I think, think what he's doing. I think the thing is with Kante, I think 
his main attribute is that he is a destroyer in midfield. I, I don't think he's ever been technically gifted on the ball. I think there's no doubt about it that Jorginho and Kovacic have always been better on the ball than him. Mm. Just think now, now after a year of injuries, it almost seems as if he's lost that sort of energy a bit. I mean, he still obviously runs about a lot and he's still an important player, but it does seem sometimes he's he's off the pace. Whereas you look at him from 2017 when he bought him, he was everywhere, but now he just seems a bit lost at times. I don't know if that's down to him or Lampard and how he plays in this system. But he does see in the player that he was two, three years ago. Yeah, I mean, he was in and out of the squad last year due to injuries, and it was seeming to be his first sort of period with injury almost. But another one I feel that's been shorn into the side is, is Mason Mount. You know, he doesn't... I mean, you look at the team sheet against Southampton, and he was on the wing, and I thought... He's a sensational talent, but he's like a number eight. He plays between the lines, close to the half spaces. He's so deadly there, and he influences games. And it feels such a shame to just shoehorn him in on the left or the right. And I sort of understand why fans get frustrated when they see the team sheets week in, week out, and go, there's Mount again. Oh, he's been put on the wing. If you can't fit him into your like midfield structure, don't waste him on the wings, because it, it almost hampers us. You know, Lampard did a good job last season. You know, he's got a great eye for talent, be it with the academy or outside. You know, it's been nothing short of phenomenal. And we've seen over this summer, our recruitment has, it has it's improved. It's in, you know, we went from Morata, Drinkwater, Bakayoko in one season to the likes of Werner, Havertz, Chilwell. Outstanding. But the coaching and managing feels a little bit of a different story. And it's it's such a shame. He sometimes overthinks and makes these rookie mistakes. And you do wonder... If it keeps going on and going on, what will happen? Because, you know, as fans, no one's going to be chanting for his head, but the board are going to look and go, we've put £200 million down. Where's our progress? Where's our chance at silverware? That's just the nature of football. It's not nice to think about, but it's it's a, it's a results business. It's as simple as that. Let's head over to our second game of the week, this time against Euro, Europa League champion Seville. And the referee blows the final whistle, a point apiece between Frank Lampard and Julian Lopetegui. Frank Lampard will be very, very grateful to walk into a press conference and talk about a clean sheet tonight. Chelsea nil, Seville nil. Not the most entertaining game, entertaining game for the neutral. But what, what were your key points from the game, guys? I think before we say anything about Chelsea, I think... We need to show Sevilla a bit of respect and, and say how good they were defensively. They've got a great shape, very hard team to break down. And you can tell what they are, Europa League champions, and what they do so well in Europe. I think the system they play with the players they've got is, is phenomenal, really. I mean, I think they'll give La Liga a real, real good go this year, to be honest. I think, you know, they were magnificent. Yeah, especially how Real Madrid and Barcelona are currently. I mean, mm, they're, yeah, they're not exactly. looking great. You know, you say that. Um, I think Chilwell, we've talked about signings. He's he's shown how his addition to our defence has been much needed. You know, worth every penny, in my opinion, we paid. His attitude. I mean, he saved Zuma on one giveaway and he made sure it didn't result in a corner, which we, we remember with Rudiger when the ball went out for the he went for the corner and then we conceded against I can't remember was it was it Man United or Arsenal? I can't remember which game it was. But Chilwell's been incredible, you know, defensively solid in every appearance I've seen him. And one little thing, that Mendy save, it was absolutely outstanding. Um, not only that, but the way he palms it away from danger too and not into the path of uh, De Jong, you know, 
Mendy and Thiago Silva being back brought just that sense of calm to our defence, and it's much needed. Wouldn't you agree, Chris? Yeah, definitely. I think that game really just showed the difference that those two players make. I mean, that side for Mendy, I don't think really got any sort of credit in anything that I heard from anyone, really. Um, mm-hmm. But it wasn't, it was the fact that it took a deflection and he, he had to adjust. And then, like you said, he didn't just save it. He actually got it away from danger so no one else could turn it in. That's thought, the thing. I thought Chilwell was superb. Um, I think he's. He, I think he's been good every game he's played. And there was a few moments where we looked like we was we was in trouble. But that extra pace of Chilwell just just really makes a difference at, at left back. Yeah, hundred um, percent. Thiago Silva just marshals everyone, makes sure that everyone does their job. Defensively, I did. I couldn't. I couldn't pick fault with us. But no. going like we was absolutely shocking. Yeah, I mean, on that save, I thought we we might be a bit harsh on Kepa, but. Let's just look at it as a general goalkeeping situation. You could easily, where Luc de Jong is, you could palm that into his, his, his path and he'll score the tap in. But it's so quick reactions to just nowhere to go. And it's that calmness again. But yeah, you say about the attack, our wide play was, was a bit weak. I mean, Mason Mount again, he, he's not a winger. I, you know, we go on a Southampton game when he was playing on the wing. You know, he, he's been shoehorned into the side in that manner. And it, it's just it's just not necessary. Um it's a shame that we almost sacrificed attack for defence. You know, we kind of need to get a nice mesh of the two. But, yeah, you're right, both of you. I mean, this this is no walkover Seville side. You know, they've convincingly beat Man United. They beat Wolves and a strong Inter Milan side last season to lift the Europa League. And if any of our listeners, which I'm sure they have, gave the Bayern game a watch in the Super Cup, they gave Bayern a scare. And this is arguably the best side in Europe, the Bayern Munich. So... Yeah, I mean, a point to point, I'm I'm feeling better than last season as last time we took on Spanish opposition in the opening Champions League group stage, we lost and it puts you on the back foot. Ren and Krasnodar, they didn't look too great when they played one another. That ended in a draw. So we're not in a bad position, are we really, after one game? No, I mean, we, we should still easily get through this group. I'd be surprised if we don't win this group, to be honest. I know we've still got a place severe away, but... There's no reason why we can't win the group. Yeah, exactly. Right, we will be back to talk our main topic after this. For all you budding kit collectors out there, Get Shirty offer you the chance to add to your kit collection without ever knowing what you've bought. Just order a box at getshirtyshop.co.uk and await the arrival of your new shirt. All kits are authentic, brand new with the tags still on and available in all sizes. Remember, you can support our podcast by using the code at the bridge pod at the checkout. So that's getshirtyshop.co.uk. What are you waiting for? Welcome back, listeners. It has been nearly 30 episodes since we last covered A Cult Hero, all the way back to April of 2019, when we talked all about the career of Damien Duff. That's what Berth and I did. Well, that break is over. Cult Heroes has made its glamorous return with a striker who was once our club record signing at a now modest fee of just £15 million. A player many feel was let go too soon under Jose Mourinho. And this time, we are looking at the career of the one Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank. Lampard. Hasselbank. They get the shot away. It's his angle. It's his goal. Chelsea lead again. Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank is back. So let's start, as we always do, from the beginning. Gerald Floyd Hasselbank, known to us all as Jimmy. He's now 48 years old, and even though he played international football 
for the Netherlands. He was actually born in uh, Suriname on the 27th of March, 1972. He stands at five foot ten, which is a great height. I'm um, that height, you know. To he won't win many headers, but you know. But he was a rapidly quick player, you know. One powerful shot. He was fantastic in the air, even at five foot ten, and incredible from set pieces as well. You know, he initially began his youth career as a goalkeeper, which is interesting because in his height, but he moved to the role of a, a right winger and then eventually into the striker position. He professionally his, his professional career began at uh, Telstar and AZ Alkmaar. And he would eventually play for a total of 10 club sides during his youth. He was no stranger to trouble. Uh, during these formative years, uh, he's admitted to becoming involved in gangs during his teenage years. Now, in 95, he moves to Portuguese side Campo Marentes. I did a lot of research to pronounce that team name right because it yeah. looks it's it looks it's a mad one. Trust me, I was just like, I don't want to butcher this. But after this was after AZ Alkmaar chose not to keep him. And this was kind of where the nickname Jimmy it originates from because the chairman of the Portuguese side wanted to keep his signing a secret. And they so they told the press that he had simply signed a player called Jimmy. But after his signing was revealed, the name just stuck and he was known as Jimmy rather than Gel for, well, the rest of his career, wasn't he? Uh, he stayed for a single season before he moved to Boavista where he would lift his first and only piece of silverware in his career, that being the Taca de Portugal in 97. He left Portugal in the summer of 97, signed by Leeds, and that was under the management of George Graham for a fee of just £2 million. And he did struggle to adapt to the English game, even though he scored on his debut against Arsenal. But in the two years he was at Leeds, he would score 16 in 33 and 18 in 36, and he'd finished joint top scorer of the Premier League, which is quite a respectable total. You know, in that final season, he was he was meant to be unhappy with the contract Leeds had offered him. And the manager at the time was David O'Leary. And they said that if a club paid the high fee they wanted, he'd be allowed to leave. A club did. And that was Atletico Madrid. They came calling in 99. They paid 10 million for his services. And the manager of Atletico at that time, do you know? Um, I don't know. It was, no. one, it was one Claudio Ranieri. Ah. Yeah, so he spent just the one season in Real Madrid and it resulted in an incredible season, 24 in 34. And he was runner-up in the Copa del Rey that season. But this one season, sadly, it resulted in Ranieri being sacked and Atletico being relegated. And due to a clause in his four-year deal, it meant he was able to leave the club that summer. So before we look at his time at Chelsea, what, what do you feel stands out for you guys about his youth career and the time leading up to his move to Chelsea? Um, I mean, I, I didn't realise he actually went to Atletico. I mean, growing up, I just thought he played for Leeds and then came to us. Um, but I remember sort of watching him at Leeds when I was a kid and sort of remembering how good of a shot he had. He was always very powerful and quick. And he was sort of, he was sort of one of those players that sort of he was so fiery. He always has been quite fiery, and you can tell sort of that he had a desire to win at all costs, and he was just he just wanted to win. He's a proper elite athlete, and he's always been quite a big build, and he just he looked like he wanted to succeed in life, um, especially when he came to the Premier League and came back to us. He just looked like he wanted to win things and wanted to win games, um, and you know I didn't realize he, he played under Claudio Ranieri at Atletico Madrid, but best in disguise really that he went there because then he came to Chelsea and. He became a cause hero, as we've uh, we've called him. Yeah, I, I think it, I was always really surprised when 
when he left Leeds, that no one else in the Premier League took him on. I mean, his record was more than respectable, but there was yeah. always rumours about him being hard to manage. And I think that, that probably put a lot of teams off. The move yeah. obviously worked out. Yeah, you're spot on. When I was doing some research just to sort of get comb over the facts, there was a couple of sort of opinions thrown out there that he was almost an Anelka-type player. Now, mm. I, I didn't really think about that at the time, but... You know, you can't blame a, a player for being ambitious and wanting a better contract, you know, a better salary. But that move to Atletico, I mean, it's that season. I only knew about the Atletico move purely due to the Fernando Torres documentary on Amazon because, obviously, Torres stayed with Atletico when they were relegated. But I don't... I don't... I think that was... Yeah, it must have been that year. I might be very wrong, but I thought it was when he stayed because he was quite young. But, you know, Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank, you know, he turned his life around. You know, it's so easy to be influenced when you're young and it, you, you, your life, not just your career, can take such a dramatic turn, positive or negative. And he earned those big money moves, in, in my opinion. And at the time, Leeds certainly took a gamble on him and it paid off incredibly well. I mean, he may have struggled at first, but he worked hard and he became the prolific forward for that Yorkshire side. So we look at we look at Chelsea. He was a club record signing when he joined from Atletico in 2000. Uh, his release release fee was 15 million, which could and should be considered a bargain, really, as he averaged nearly a goal every two games over the next four years for us. And at the time, the 15 million was a joint transfer record overall with Newcastle's move for Shearer. Now that's that's pressure on his shoulders straight away. And as the season prior, we, we, we signed a record deal at the time, £10 million for Chris Sutton. Um, he just left the club after only scoring three goals. It, it, that wasn't great. Record money moves in Chelsea. They don't always work out, do they? But, yeah, Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank scores in the charity shield against United. And he would score regularly during that 2000-2001 season on the way to the Premier League Golden Boot, where he got 26 goals. And he scores an absolute screamer at Old Trafford in the September. You know what? That is one of my all-time oh, favourite goals. That is beautiful strike. I don't think you can describe that goal as beautiful because it was just an absolute rocket. It just hits it. Yeah, just a proper fierce shot. I mean, it's like watching me play football and he, and he hit that. I mean, I've, I'm only joking, of course. I've, I can I've hit prob- it hard. Yeah, I've probably put that commentary in just before we started this uh, little court heroes because I thought you can't not have that iconic goal. Um, yeah, of course, yeah. Yeah, and by then, the manager who'd signed him was obviously Viali. He, he'd been sacked and replaced by Claudio Ranieri, who'd brought him to Atletico Madrid just over a year earlier. And the following year, he, he forms this prolific partnership with Eidegger Johnson, and they sort of called it, I've seen fire and ice, which is pretty pretty accurate. I mean, Eidegger Johnson, mm. I can see a court heroes coming up for him one day soon. Yeah, I was just thinking 100%. that. Yeah. And together, their goals helped us reach the FA Cup final. But sadly, Jimmy was injured in the league game prior to the final and was clearly unfit before eventually being substituted in that game. But for another, unfortunately here, the goals dried up in the next two years. But he did help us to qualify for the Champions League on both occasions. And in March 2004, he scored a hat-trick in a win over Wolves, thereby becoming the only player in Chelsea's history to score three times after coming on as a substitute. Jimmy, he, he was 32 when he was allowed to leave in the summer of 04, with one year remaining on his deal. As new manager, you know him, Jose Mourinho, he, he looked to bring in his own players, his own team. 
and he ended his time at the bridge with 88 goals in 177 appearances. So how do you reflect back on his time at Stamford Bridge? I mean, was he let go too soon by Jose, even if he did bring in the likes of Kesman and Drogba that summer? Um, it's difficult to say, really. I mean, would would he be too good to be his backup striker? I mean, it's one of them because Jacob Johnson as well, who played with Drogba a bit and played through the middle. So, you know, Kesman, Drogba, Good Johnson, would Mourinho have liked the way Hasselbank played? I don't know. I mean, it just seemed as if it was the perfect time for him to move on from Chelsea because he was never going to play as much as he wanted to. I think he would have been too good to just sit on the bench. So, I mean, he was a great player in his prime, but I think it's probably the right time for him to go anyway. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I don't know whether I don't know whether Mourinho's seen him as someone that he potentially couldn't manage. Maybe if if he wasn't going to be playing, was he was he the sort of player? I can imagine he's quite a strong character, so I can imagine mm-hmm. that he is someone who would be knocking on the manager's door if he isn't playing. And I just think with players like that, sometimes if you're not going to play them as the manager, then maybe it is better just to move them on just for that squad harmony thing. But like an unbelievable player for Chelsea, but. I think it probably was the right time to move him on, especially with the direction the club was going in at that time. Yeah, I kind of feel the arrival of Roman Abramovich is kind of what brought Hasselbank's time at Chelsea to the abrupt end. You know, we may have had the likes of Mutu and Crespo on the books. I know you're going to go Mutu. He was actually pretty decent. He was obviously off the field issue, sort of clouded that end to his career at the club. Mm. But, you know, during that first year under Roman's ownership we obviously had them too but that first year under his ownership Jimmy Floyd still finished top scorer for Chelsea ahead of those new signings you know and he eventually ends his time in England with 127 goals in 288 Premier League games and that's a figure that the likes of Ruud van Nistelrooy and Dennis Bergkamp and behind only Van Persie amongst his countrymen you know that's that's incredible he scored more goals than Bergkamp Burkamp was kind of one of them players that he was a maverick. He was majestic, but he didn't score a lot. But Van Nistelrooy, you see as if someone said Van Nistelrooy or Hasselbank, you would assume Hasselbank didn't score as many as Nistelrooy mm, because that, that was Nistelrooy all over. He scored goals. And to be only behind Van Persie, who has been obviously Dutch scorers in the Premier League, is pretty something. Um, Favourite goal for me, we've already talked about, it. it'd be that volley against United in 2000. It's just such a powerful powerful shot and yeah. it's the lovely technique you know he chests the ball down controls it and smashes it into that corner that's a terrific cross close They're turning it back Hasselbeck goal absolutely top draw you won't see a better goal this weekend than that again I don't think you can describe it as lovely because it's just such a fierce hit I mean it is a proper powerful I don't think I've ever seen a ball hit that hard before from a volley I mean as a kid I thought wow that's the greatest goal I've ever seen but yeah looking back it's such a, a ferocious shot that it you know it's it's hard to beat that goal to be honest he did score a really good goal against Tottenham as well oh yeah I, I know what you mean yeah I was just thinking so, that one yeah he almost like, curled it and he fell over at the same time <laughs> yeah, if I'm not mistaken it. and he hits it into the top corner you think wow that is a really really good goal and it's against Tottenham which is, exactly. always makes it better yeah 100% Chris? Yeah, I, I like that I was going to bring up the Tottenham goal. I think that I think that's why that's why he, he scores so many goals, though, because 
he could score all sorts of goals, like the volley at Old Trafford, the left-footed one against Tottenham, goals from out of nothing. He didn't rely on people to make goals for him. He could make them himself and he could win games by himself. And that's that's a sign of a great goal scorer. And that's why he's only behind Van, um, Van Persie in the list. Exactly. I mean, his international career, it ended in 2004 after playing and scoring in a Euro 2004 qualifier against Belarus. Um, he would represent the Netherlands at the 98 World Cup, but he was sadly not selected for either Euro 2000. And obviously the Dutch did not qualify for the World Cup in Japan career in 2002. So his international career wasn't quite the best, unfortunately. But after Chelsea, he joins Middlesbrough after turning down moves from Fulham, Celtic and Rangers. And he's, of course, part of that famous UEFA Cup campaign, which saw Steve McLaren's side defeat. Xanthi from Greece, Grasshopper, Zurich from Switzerland. These recently, well, they're not recently departed. They don't exist at all. It's been a fair few years, but Dnipro from Ukraine. Um, Litex from Bulgaria, Stuttgart from Germany, Roma from Italy, Basel from Switzerland, and Stal Bucharest from Romania en route to the UEFA Cup final. Some top teams from that era in that, in that I must admit. Mm. Um, sadly, in the final, Borough are beaten 4 0 by, oh, yes, yeah, Spanish club Seville. Of course they are. It's the UEFA Cup Strike Europa League. That's their competition. Um, and that's his final game for Middlesbrough, you know, before a move to Cholton and then later Cardiff. And ironically, his first Cholton goal was scored at Stamford Bridge and he earned a standing ovation from the home supporters as he refused to celebrate the goal. This was, I think, this was during an era where you players didn't really. Do the respect thing when they scored a goal. I mean, yeah, they just are, celebrate if they score. Yeah, yeah, people yeah. people are for it and against it, and we see both sides. We understand, but yeah, you know, he ended his, his he ended his career with cup final heartache again. Being part of the losing Cardiff side in the 07-08 FA Cup final defeat to Portsmouth, but overall he played 466 games. He scored 207 goals. It, it, prolific, prolific goal scorer for sure. When you think about his playing career, he, he certainly deserved more silverware than a single cup competition. But how do you think his playing career is remembered? I think, like you said, he's just he's remembered to be just an out-and-out goal scorer. I think he's, he's one of the most underrated strikers has been in the Premier League, I think. I think when you talk about sort of top goal scorers in the Prem, no one ever really says Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank, but he should be in, in that bracket or in that conversation. I'm not saying he should be top by any means, but... I think people should consider him one of the best out-and-out goal scorers the Prem scene because, like Chris said, he can score any type of goals. He was quick, he was powerful, he was great in the air. He can make something out of nothing, and he did it in the Prem. He did it in, you know, in Spain as well. He should have won more silverware, but you know these things happen. I mean, look at Gerard; he didn't, never won the Premier League, but he's still on a all-time Premier League great. So. Sometimes these things just don't happen, but yeah, I think Hasselbank has to go down as one of the best Premier League strikers there's been. Definitely at Chelsea, anyway. Yeah, without a doubt. I think I think he'll go down as someone a little bit undervalued. I think that happens when, even if you're a great player, but you don't win stuff, people just tend to forget everything that you've done, really, because the, the teams that you was in are never talked about, so you're never really talked about as an individual, which is a shame, because I think when you look at strikers, really, you should be looking at their at their record, and his record speaks for itself. And he's definitely one of the one of the best strikers the Premier League's ever seen. For me and many Chelsea fans, really, I mean, I'll I'll remember him for scoring well, 
screamers and being able to hit a football quite really bloody hard. I mean, of course, not forgetting that perfect hat-trick against Spurs, which you mentioned, Berth, you know, his strike partnership with Eidegger Johnson, it's one of pure beauty and it's very underrated as well. Everyone talks about Cole and York, Shearer and Sutton. And I guess to a now point, you could have Sturridge and Suarez, but, you know, that partnership was absolutely outstanding. But... The question, where is Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank now? Well, after being, well, working with the Chelsea under-16 squad, he would study for his UEFA B&A licences before being a member of the coaching staff at Nottingham Forest. And he would go on to manage Royal Antwerp, Burton Albion, whom he led to the League Two title after Gary Rowett's departure, QPR, and more recently in 2017, Northampton Town. But for the last few years, though, he's been making appearances on Sky Sports, giving his insight, his views on the game. It's been quite positive, you know, the response from various people on social media. You know, he comes across as an intelligent guy with a great perspective. And whether he decides to return to coaching, it's just a wait and see, really. But what are your final thoughts, lads, on Jimmy Floyd? Well, you know what? Me and Chris used to play with um, play football with someone who was on the books at Burton Albion when Jimmy Ford Hasselbank was was a manager. Um, and he was telling me, uh, part of the once, that uh, Jimmy Ford was like, he'd always get himself involved in training. And if he lost, like, say, a game in training, Jimmy Ford Hasselbank would be really annoyed with it and he'll, he'll be really, like, gutted about it and he'll, he'll be angry with the players. So it just shows you the type of person that Jimmy Ford Hasselbank is. He's a true winner. Um, and he always showed that when he was wearing Chelsea colours, you know, it... it the expressions on his face and show how much the club meant to him, how much winning meant to him. And yeah, he was just a fantastic servant at the club, great player, um, very intelligent player and off the pitch as well. You know, he conducts himself really well as a pundit, very well spoken, great mind for the game. And he will go down as, as, a, as a legend at Chelsea, I think, and rightfully so. Yeah, I would echo those words. Just a, a fierce competitor and goal scorer. That's that's what he is. Um, well, I mean, he only sits alongside the likes of Shearer and Van Persie as the only players to have won the Premier League's Golden Boot whilst playing for two different clubs. You know, mm. Shearer, Shearer did it with Blackburn and Newcastle, Van Persie with United and Arsenal. And obviously Hasselbank's done it with Leeds and ourselves. He was an incredible goal scorer, an incredible striker. And we will talk... I'm sure in the future about him when we do a, a special on Eidegger Johnson. So we'll look forward to doing that one day. Um, with that, we've we've come to the end of another episode of At The Bridge Pod. Uh, we had a bit of a power cut, but uh, nothing got uh, too damaged, thankfully. You, you won't know what that was about, listeners. You'll be like, what? But yeah, seamless editing. But um, yeah, where can our listeners find us on social media so we can moan to the electric company? Uh, on Twitter, <laughs> I am at Chris Burford. And on Twitter, I'm at Chris09Adams. You can find myself on Twitter and Instagram as that redhead dude. But for all things at the Bridge Pod, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for exactly that at the Bridge Pod. So drop us a like, a follow, keep up to date on all things Chelsea. So till next time, listeners, that is us signing off. For Chelsea fans everywhere, this is the ultimate football app for you. Never miss a match with live commentary, goal alerts, lineups, in-game stats and TV and radio links for over 100 leagues globally. Download the free CFC Blues app now from the App Store and Google Play.